Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 69, the big one. Gustav Krupp Bolhen und Halbach was now in the concern's main chair, but it hadn't had time yet to mold to his backside. Neither had the board of directors. But being a diplomat, Gustav knew he needed some kind of demonstration to show everyone he was now in charge. Luckily for him, it was coming up on the company's centennial. The company was started in 1811, but by 1911, Gustav wasn't quite ready to put on a grand show. He was still feeling his way around. But by the next year, 1912, the Crown Prince of the Ruhr would demonstrate his position by putting on a demonstration of the might of Krupp's with him at its head. And though, in time, those of the works would accept him, the other barons would not, because they didn't have to. They had earned their money the old-fashioned way, by waiting for their fathers or uncles to die. They didn't have to have their last name given to them by the Kaiser. But that was in the future. Gustav came on board in 1906, but it would not be until 1909 that he was given full powers, and it would be then that he would learn of the true power and might of his wife's concern. Fried Krupp of Essen, 99% owned by his wife, owned much of Australia's metal industry, as well as huge sections of India, and was the sole owner of a section of islands off of Australia and its vast nickel mines through a fake French company, of course. But there was more. Krupps had an impressive share in almost every arms manufacturer in the developed world, including British war material makers, and much of those in Austria. But just looking out of his window on his first day at his new job, Gustav had been impressed. The works here used up more electricity than Berlin and more gas than the larger city around it. The works were literally a city within a city. It had its own fire department, police force, and traffic laws. But beyond Essen, the works owned outright pits, quarries, mines, ships, and many other factories that just couldn't fit in Essen. And there were the numbers as well. Gustav was made in the image of Alfred. Such things mattered. By the end of each year, the works produced 2 million tons of coal, 800,000 tons of coke, 100,000 tons of iron ore, 800,000 tons of pig iron. And at its test firing ranges alone, during Gustav's first year, just over 25,000 bullets were fired, and over 48,000 shells that blasted away their targets. These were numbers enough to supply a respectable war, but for Krupp, they were just expendable samples. But of these various quantities, Gustav was determined to beat them. He would always be loyal to his wife and her company, but he wanted everyone to know of his loyalty. And the only way that could happen was if he worked harder than anyone else and guided the company to even higher horizons of prosperity. That was his self-appointed goal. Then there's just being flashy, and Gustav was not above this. 
So before 1906 was out, he planned and oversaw the construction of a new chief administrative building, which has 23 letters in the word. No kidding. The best I can do is Hauptverwaltungsgebäude. It was magnificent. It was huge. It was modern. It was extremely ugly. The stone used on its outside absorbed the soot from the chimneys, which soon turned the building to a dark gray. But back to work. After the Russo-Japanese War, Gustav figured out, after sending his agents to the various battlegrounds, that barbed wire would be the next big thing. A shell might destroy a structure or wreak havoc in a foxhole, but any survivors would still be safe from a direct charge by the narrow, sharp cord that cut, caused pain, and it demanded respect. So, in 1911, Gustav had Krupps buy the Hem Wire Works, the largest in his country. By the end of the first year of the Balkan War, his investment was paid back in full. All profit after that was just that, profit. But there was more. Gustav had Krupp buy all rights to the rustless or stainless steel from which diesel engines were made. The works already shared rights to the idea of the engine already. And it was acquisitions like this that made Bertha Krupp the richest person in Germany in 1913. She was valued at 283 million marks. In the summer of 1912, it was time to celebrate. 100 years of the Krupp family making weapons. For starters, and only starters, some 14 million marks were distributed among the Kruppeneer. Newspapers from all over the world came to witness and report on how Germans demonstrated their pride and accomplishments. There would be three days of formal celebrations, all worked out by Gustav, of course. With his wife's shares in his possessions, he was a one-man stockholders meeting. The Kaiser would be there, of course, with representatives from all branches of the military. These days, because it changed with the times, Wilhelm wore his best naval uniform, and he practically threw medals at anyone who had accomplished anything for Germany. And there was to be a painting commissioned, of course. In it, there's Gustav, standing in front of the crowd, who can all easily fit inside of the reception hall of the new administrative office that I can't pronounce. A who's who in German politics and in the military. The painting is still at Villa Hugel today. But it was the third day's events that were planned to grab everyone's attention, especially the Kaiser's, and give all of Germany something to talk about for the rest of the year. For some months leading up to this event, Gustav had decided that there would be a feudal tournament, a real feudal tournament, with jousting and real lances. To be sure, Gustav's armor, yes, he would be participating, was made up of high-carbon Krupp stahl. No weapon used that day would be getting through it. The Krupp executives would be dressed as vassals, a telling point, and the Kruppenier, who had the honor to attend, would dress as serfs. Still, this whole event rather smacked of the days of yore, rather than what the concern brought to Germany now. A string of days, months, 
and years in which the country was safe from attack, because they had the best weapons on the planet. Never mind that the last joust in Germany had taken place during the reign of Maximilian I, who died in 1519. This spectacle was about German might and love of combat, which pleased Wilhelm to no end. When he got word of what was coming, the All-Highest dashed to his personal suite within the villa, yes, it's good to be the king, and returned wearing not exactly clothing specific to the event, who goes around with clothing like that, but carrying on his person almost every weapon he did have with him. The man could hardly retake his seat in the imperial box for all his cutlery. Then Gustav gave his remarks from the back of a horse, the one thing he did not have to practice for, and prepared to get the ceremonies underway. By his side was his four-year-old son, Alfred, the heir to everything he could see from his small pony, everything Gustav could see from his enormous beast, and everything Wilhelm could see from his imperial box, and more besides. But the event never took place. As Gustav was about to be hoisted up on his charging steed, a messenger ran up to him to report that there had been a massive rural coal mine explosion. For some two decades, the mine managers had been telling those above them that the mines needed to be sprayed down with water, periodically, to combat not only the ever-growing case of lung disease, but also fire damp, when the air itself had enough dust in it to ignite. Now there were some 110 dead crumpineer, and many more injured or trapped. Everything was quietly explained to the All-Highest, and he sadly agreed, to celebrate now after what they knew would be unseemly. So, life and work were gotten back to. Gustav, having pored over Alfred's notes, found ideas for other weapons, or improving those already around, for cutting costs, and in general, taking the company to greater heights. The works of Essen, along with Schneider of France, Skoda of Czechoslovakia, Mitsui of Japan, Vickers and Armstrong of Great Britain, and Putilov of Russia, churned out ever deadlier weapons and sold them to whoever could pay. No one saw or considered the downside to this spreading of potential violence. Well, that's not completely true. Andrew Carnegie, the steel magnate, spoke out, and Lenin wrote that Europe had become a barrel of gunpowder. If there was a fuse to this gunpowder, it seemed to be the Balkans, which amazingly didn't bother Gustav. Yes, it was a little too close for comfort, but what bothered him was how many of the battles ended up. Of the various factions in the Balkans, each side had placed orders from Britain, France, and Germany, so there was a hodgepodge of weaponry. The Greek and Bulgarian cannons were from France, the Ottoman Empire's guns came from Krupp, and they had the bad form to lose more battles than they won. This was bad advertising for the concern. Weren't their weapons supposed to be the best in the world? By 1912, the question was openly being asked as the men of the Sultan were pushed around. Are Crump Cannon the best? Is their steel the finest on the planet? But then came a reprieve. The Second Balkan War, when Romania allied with Turkey, 
The Romanians were hardy fighters, and to boot, already Krupp customers. It was a win-win, except for those dying on the battlefield. Thus was Krupp's reputation saved, and in a larger sense, Germany's. Ever since the defeat of the French in 1870, the Germans viewed that victory as a confirmation of their superiority. Then that idea quickly spread outside the country's military. Simply, the race of Germans were the best on the planet, so every time a German set or broke a world's record, the world got to hear about it. And no one encapsulated this arrogance better than Kaiser Wilhelm. He was bellicose, gruff, and believed he could overcome all with his intense stare, loud voice, or, if needs must, his Krupp cannon. As for the world outside Germany, many believed that the victory of 1870 was either a fluke or that the French soldiers had been mismanaged by Louis Napoleon. Either way, the Germans were not as great as they believed. So, with the ever-growing idea that one day Germany and her neighbors would come to battle, those neighbors and the British were not intimidated. As one British nobleman put it, and the British assumed, like Germany, that they were the master race. The danger now is that in Europe, we have a competitor, the most formidable in numbers, intellect, and education, with which we have ever been confronted. And yet, there is a saying, that God made all men, and Sam Colt, the inventor of the pistol, made them equal. Because no matter how strong you are, anyone who can pull a trigger can kill you. And Crump had done the same thing, but on a massive scale. By 1911, the works had sold 50,000 cannon. The majority of them now belonged to countries other than Germany. Yet somehow, the duality of Germany having the best soldiers and Krupp selling their finest weapons to anyone with money continued. Countries, as well as people, seemed to fear true introspection. The same can be said of the concern. Krupp sold weapons to the United States, thinking they would never be at war. But he also sold weapons to Russia, all they wanted, or rather, all they could afford. But since 1907, Russia, along with France and Britain, had formed the Triple Entente. To oppose this was the Triple Alliance of Austria, Italy, and Germany. Yet Gustav continued to sell Russia all it wanted, and didn't skimp on the quality, or make their weapons heavier than they needed to be, as Alfred had done. When Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin started making his floating apparatus in 1906, Krupp's three years later came out with the anti-Zeppelin weapon. And who bought the most of them? France, Britain, and Russia. But the precedent laid down by Alfred that Krupp's could sell to anyone but Berlin must buy from Krupp's was still going strong. Yet the Kaiser did find the strength to put his foot down when Krupp's keel shipyards were prepared to build for Britain eight warships a year. That was going too far for the German Navy, yet Gustav had been ready to fulfill the orders. So he settled on having one price for the rest of the world and one price for Berlin. But amazingly, Berlin's costs were always higher. 
sometimes doubly so. And yet the Kaiser stuck with his armor, not that he had much of a choice. Soon after the British naval deal fell through, it was discovered that Krupp agents had been, for quite some time, bribing military officials in key positions to push for purchasing the work's latest weapons, when what they had was more than enough, or worse yet, sending reports back to Berlin to drum up war scares, thus generating more purchases of weapons. There was a trial, not that Krupp suffered for it, but right in the middle of it, the Kaiser showed on which side he was, by bringing Gustav to Berlin and awarding him Prussia's Order of the Red Eagle, second class. Simply, Gustav, and through him the concern, could not be hampered in any way, because their weapons were the left hand of Germany's inevitable clash with its neighbors. The right hand? The Schlieflin plan. The story is well known. Count Schlieflin, chief of the German general staff, worked on his Gross plan for years, finishing it up in 1905. And some of his final words, he died in 1913, were, See that you make the right wing strong, emphasizing the need for Germany's right wing to cut through neutral Belgium, brush the coast, brushing all before it aside, and then making for Paris. Yet the great plan did not take into account the location of the concern. The Ruhr coal deposits in western Germany that ran for miles to the north, all the way under the British Channel, could not be moved. Hence the works could not be moved. So the German right had to be strong, but the German left had to be strong enough to keep the works going, especially during a war. But more than that, Schlieflin's plan called for the invaders to reach the channel and so negate any contribution Britain could make there. But to get there, the Germans had to go up to and past the strongest fortress in Europe, the stronghold within the city of Liege in neutral Belgium. Reinforced long before Gustav became the head of Krupps, Liege had been strengthened by a 30-mile circle of fortresses all having moats around them, and each one had 210-millimeter guns, which could be drawn inward when reloading, thus protecting them during exposed moments. To combat this area of massive defensive works, Germany had created an army just for this, some six highly trained brigades, and with them would be a weapon designed and built by Krupp that would take the world by storm and hopefully negate everything the Triple Entente believed of their defensive positions to the north. To destroy Liege and the Allies' hopes of a successful defense near the coast, Krupp had designed a howitzer. But this one was more powerful than anything they had ever built before, more powerful than any gun on the planet. It was the 420-millimeter Big Berta. Actually, they built two. Grossbata required 200 trained artillerymen to deal with it, and when it was assembled, and we'll get to that in a moment, it could send its armor-piercing delayed fuse shells nine miles. In terms of understanding, its velocity could send a shell with the force of five express trains, each weighing 250 tons, all moving at 62 miles an hour. 
So destroying the fortresses at Liege was not the problem. Not for Big Bertha. But it had to be moved. That was the problem. The Mark I, Bertha, if you will, had to be broken down into two sections, which required a train each to move it. And even once assembled, it had to be encased in cement because of its recoil, which meant that when it needed to be moved for the next target, it had to be blasted out of its base. But like Schlieflin, Big Bertha's main engineer reworked his plans year after year. By 1914, the gun could be moved in its two sections on wheeled carriages. After a successful testing, the Kaiser was even more arrogant and bellicose. Then came the assassination in Sarajevo, to which Wilhelm gave a blank check of support to Austria-Hungary. The Kaiser then notified Gustav, who replied that their enemy's cannon were inferior and Germany's had never been better, which was true compared to Big Bertha. But Gustav had been busy for years selling his best products to whomever could pay his price, which was normally lower for foreigners. To make sense of the glee the young men felt as they rushed to sign up is still hard to understand. In their defense, nothing like this had ever happened before. But one can guess that this was a chance to prove their manhood, that their countrymen were the bravest in the world, which matters not a jot to an explosive projectile coming at you. Soon, war was declared by over 50 countries. Though the city of Liege itself opened its gate to General Ludendorff on August 7th, its forts were still in the fight. Still, this impressed the Kaiser enough so that when he heard of this back in Berlin, he planted a not-dispassionate kiss on Helmut von Molke, the nephew of the great marshal. But the war had just begun. Behind those Belgian city gates were still 30 miles of defensive works, and the soldiers within Liege had held up the Germans for three days already, which meant that two million German soldiers behind them were still not on their way to the coast. So Ludendorff called for Germany's surprise weapon. Yet here was the rub. They were still in Essen. Two days later, they were still in Essen. Yet working through the night, every man jack possible, or man crumpineer possible, was on the job, loading the four sections of the two guns onto trains. Finally, by the morning of August 10th, they set out only to be stopped when the Belgians blew up a tunnel. The trains sat there, only having gone some 20 miles. The tunnel was beyond repair, and the Germans were forced to go on the defensive. Those guns had to reach their destination 20 more miles north, or the entire Schlieflin plan was doomed. So the offloading began, but the men around the four trains did not have the equipment that Essen did. Horses were confiscated, cars were used, men's backs were put into the effort. Really, the guns only had to go another 11 miles, as their shells could reach 9 miles more. But that was still another 11 miles. Through the night and the next day, the men strained to push-pull the gun carriages forward. 
By August 12th, one of the guns had reached the necessary distance. It was assembled by the 200 men with it. Then moving 300 yards away and getting as close to the ground as they could, the order to fire was given. The ground shook. The shell was sent a mile into the air, and it stayed there for a minute before hitting its target. Fort Pontice, right where it was supposed to. First, the shell, with this momentum, pierced the layers of concrete. Its time-delayed fuse, waiting. Then it went off, and then steel, concrete, and body parts rose a thousand feet overhead. Minutes later, the next fort was targeted. Fort Lancine. It, too, disappeared after the smoke and debris drifted away. Within 48 hours, every fortress protecting the northern and eastern moats of Liege was in shambles. The German First Army, the Army of the Meuse, was on the march north.